Hey everybody, welcome to You Have to Watch This Podcast. I'm Alan. And I'm Ryan. And today we're joined by a very special guest. Um, how would you like to be introduced? Uh, Dr. My Lord and Master. My Lord and Master, Dr. <laughs> Kevin Alexander Boone. That's a great introduction. I like uh, that. That's a <laughs> Kevin is the director of a film that I worked on last spring called A Host of Sparrows that is premiering in Chambersburg, Pennsylvania on July, July 7th. 7 uh, p.m. At the Capitol Theater. So he's here to promote that. But he's also here to talk about a movie I have never seen. If you're new to the show, the, the premise of our show is Ryan and I make each other watch movies that the other hasn't seen. And for this week, uh, we reached out to Kevin and asked him what movie he would like to talk about that we had never seen. And he brought up John Carpenter's The Thing, which I had never seen, but Ryan had. Yeah. Oh, you'd seen so, Yeah, I have. Yeah. Um, so. Should have gone with Weekend at Bernie's. <laughs> I love Weekend at Bernie's. Oh, do you? <laughs> there you go. All right. Why? Why the thing? Why? Why? Why, 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 did, why did you suggest the thing? Uh, it's a great film, and if you haven't haven't heard it, can I cast on this thing? Yeah, it's a great fucking film. <laughs> and, if, uh, and if you haven't seen it, you, your education is not complete. So yeah. it's an important movie to see. It's one of John Carpenter's best. It's not my favorite John Carpenter. It's probably number two. Uh, I've seen it 30, 40 times, and can still watch it. I just watched it before you guys came over again, and I'm still going like, damn, this is a good movie. Yeah. So. <laughs> There's that, and, and I've published on the thing. You may know that I had uh, one of my articles on the thing called uh, In Defense of John Carpenter's The Thing was included with a uh, this company, Arrow, that makes, in the, in the UK and Britain, makes uh, DVDs. They included my article on that and stuff. So I'm really into the thing, so. Okay. Uh, you had seen it before. When, did, when was yeah. the first time you saw it, Ryan? Well, I saw it when I was like 10, and it scared the crap out of me, yeah. to, 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 to be honest. And and it stuck with me. I've only seen it about five times, though, so I haven't seen it as much. But it's one of those films that I definitely put down, is that if I know it's going to be on, and I have time to actually sit down and watch it, I may... I, I make the time because I love sci-fi and I love sci-fi horror. And it just it fits my niche perfectly. Um I put it right up there with the uh, uh, when it comes to, to, to the alien movies. Mm-hmm. Oh, so, yeah. like, for me, it fits right in there. And, I mean, I've even enjoyed the prequel that came out recently. So It was okay. It was okay. <laughs> I mean, it, it wasn't it, as good as, like, it wasn't as good as that one. But it's still, for me, being a bit, uh, just, it, it, it fit in there for me just a little bit. Yeah, the reason, the reason, you know, I react that way is not because they didn't make a competent film with yeah. the, with the what they called the prequel. As far as I was concerned, it wasn't really a prequel. They just took a couple images. And said, this is where we are. <laughs> yeah. Uh, because it was the Norwegians, right? It was the Norwegian mm-hmm. base that was the one that was first taken over. If you're doing yeah. a prequel, you have to do the Norwegian base. Otherwise, you're just doing all the people packing up to go to Antarctica. Mm-hmm. So that's where this where the story happened. They didn't do that. Um, and they for uh, and there were little things that bothered me, like uh, the lead actress who did a fine job, got no objection to her, um, but she she was like. She looked like she was like 23, and she's the expert in the world. You yeah. Know? And that still bothers me. Americans do that. You, you, a British film doesn't do that. European film doesn't do that. Yeah. But American film does that all the time. So they say, look, we found you know, this thing under the ice. We found a spaceship. We found these aliens. It's first contact. We've proven there's life. And I said, oh, my yeah. God, we've got to have somebody to help us out here. Let's go find a 23-year-old <laughs> from Yale. And you're like, yeah. no, probably the person you would bring in would be 64 and had been working in this for their entire life. Yeah. So you know, that was just kind of like, no, we have to have a cute girl in the front. So you can see Hollywood at play in that. Yeah, I got you. You don't see Hollywood in play in Carpenter's The Thing. So that bothered me. But but more more to the point is there in the Carpenter's The Thing, there's this beautiful existential understory going on the whole time. 
and uh, depth, you know, and then the remake, they just leave that behind, you know. Yeah. It's not unlike the aliens, like if you like yeah. aliens, right? In the first alien, right, the message in the whole movie is listen to the girl. Yeah, <laughs> listen, exactly. Listen to Ripley. Yeah. And they don't listen to Ripley and they all die. Yeah. Second one comes along, Aliens, the second one, and then, and the message is exactly the same, so the director knew what he was doing. Yeah. That was Cameron, I think, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah it was Cameron Scott the second the first one. one. And he goes, uh, listen to the girl, they don't listen to Ripley, they all die. Mm -hmm. Third one comes along, this is Fincher, no Jack Fincher, obviously he's proven he can make <laughs> yeah. a movie, but in this one, this was like his first movie coming out of music videos. Yeah. Know? So, in that one, he comes in and, and, the, and the message is like, they won't listen to the girl, but then they do listen to the girl, and because they listen to the girl, they all die, which undermines to me the whole heart of the whole thing, yeah. you know? It, 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 it disrupts the, the sort of thematic underscoring of the, of the entire movie, and I think yeah. that happens with the, the, the sequel of the thing, you know? Yeah. It's not, not Carpenter's sequel of the Howard Hawks thing, but yeah. the most recent one, uh, is they really missed the point, you know, which is about mm -hmm. identity, you yeah. know? And uh, trust, and being a person, and what does it take to be a person, and that sort of thing. So yeah. that's all in John Carpenter's The Thing. It's fascinating. Yeah, I really, I, I watched it for the first time last night, and I really did like the the tension of all these men trapped in Antarctica, not knowing who to trust. And where the tension really came in for me was the test, the blood tests, because mm -hmm. um, you never know what what's going to happen there, and it just does a really good job of keeping you in the dark. Yeah, let me point out some if I can just talk. No, that's fine. You know, you've had classes with me. I can talk yes. forever. Yes, uh, That's <laughs> there's the. Let me show you some of the brilliance. I tried to make my argument for the brilliance of Carpenter's The Thing. So, you, you know, it includes the blood tests, right? This sort of thing. Is that if you watch this movie very carefully, right? When they get to those blood tests, these people like, you know, Knowles and Childs and all these, they're... They don't know that they're not the thing. And there's a line earlier that says, you know, well, if I was, if it was a perfect duplication and I was the thing, how would you know? And you wouldn't. Yeah. And so the, what we see from a lot of that stuff is that the person has taken over. They don't even know they were taken. How would you know? If we had replaced you completely with a clone and installed all your memories five minutes ago, he and I got together and did that, how would you know? You know and there's only one person who, who, who was able to say, no, uh, you know, he, he says it actually. He says, now I'm going to show you what I already know. You know, he's the only person that's so confident in himself, and that's McCready, the only person who's so confident in himself that he knows who he is. So that's beautiful. And then if you track it, now I don't know, you've, you've only seen it once, right? yes. you've seen it a few times, you track the people that are taken over, you can track them. You can figure out who took over who, when they were taken over, and all that. And so the first person taken over was, let's see how well you watched. Oh, what was his name? Uh, see, okay. I only saw it the one time. Switch so. the podcast, guys. <laughs> <laughs> see, they say they watched it, but did yeah. they? Uh, Palmer. Palmer. The pothead was Palmer. the first one taken over. right? And then uh, Norris was the second one taken over. Palmer took over Norris. That's never on screen. Okay. But by the time we get to that thing where McCready's been cut loose, Nalls cuts McCready loose by the cabin because he finds the ripped underwear. Um, and then he and then McCready comes back, you know, angry. Why did you lock me out? That sort of thing. Two people have been taken over at that point, and that's Palmer and Norris. And such interesting things happen with Palmer and Norris if you watch them closely, realizing, oh, they're the thing. You know, one of the, one of the moments is when um, Gary, the com commander of the whole thing, right, he taps his gun out and stuff, and he says, I give you my word, I did not, t I don't know about copper, but I did not touch that blood. And he lays the gun down and he says, but I guess you'd all be more comfortable with somebody else being in charge. And he looks to Norris, who, if you've watched closely, is a thing. And he says, I can't see anybody objecting to you, Norris. And what's fascinating is Norris's response to that. And Bill Lancaster deserves credit, too. He wrote the screenplay. So, yeah. you know, but uh, 
uh, Norris's response is fascinating, and I never hear anybody talking about it. But Norris says, "Oh, hey, no, guys, I'm not up to it." You know, but the reality is, if he had taken charge, it's over, right? Yeah. He would be the thing. He could, okay, you you go over here, Art. I'm going to meet you in that room, and he could just start taking people over left and right. But that lets you know how thoroughly the people were taken over. You're taken over so thoroughly that you would not make a decision that you wouldn't make as that former person. You know, even though you are an alien yeah. creature trying to survive. And it's all brilliant. So you get that blood test, it's really fat. Even Charles, who's very macho um, and very tough, is not sure it's him. He's just saying, well, when I find out it's not me, I'm gonna, you get that sense, I'll, I'm still going to be a strong and let you burn me or something. But McCready, he has no question who he is. You know, yeah. He has that Nietzschean Superman sort of thing going on. You know, he says, I know who I am, you know, I, know, I know what I do. And he's true to character from beginning to end. Yeah. It's fascinating. It kind of felt to me that they... The, the film tries to make you think that McCready is the thing. It. And um, I was really expecting it to go that way, but I I didn't, but at the same time, I didn't know, like, I felt like that was too on the nose. So I didn't yes. think that was... They, they were too smart. Lancaster yeah. and Carpenter were too smart to do that, but they'd set you up for it. Yeah. And when you find the ripped underwear and, you know, he, he they cut it, he cuts them loose, you know, you start thinking, hmm, now maybe he was taken over. If you've only you've seen it the first time, yeah. or whatever. But all that's planned. You know, they plan all that stuff to throw you off, so you think, oh, it might be this person. It might be this person. We don't really know. Uh, and they do it beautifully. Yeah. Um, looking at IMDb for John Carpenter, I realize this is the only only the second movie of his I've seen. What was um, the other one? The, the other one? Has? No, uh, uh, Village of the Damned. Oh, yeah. Because okay. I went on a Christopher Reeve kick right around the time he passed away. Oh, and okay. It was on uh, like Stars at the time. Uh -huh. So so back in high school, I watched that once, and it went completely over my head. But um, I have a lot of holes when it comes to John Carpenter that we're probably going to have to fill in, the, fill in on the podcast. Oh, yeah, oh, my goodness. So, There's tons. Uh, I mean, because that's... I would put Village of the Damned. Of course, I don't know if you know the original ones. You know, the original... Uh, there was uh, Children of the Damned and Village of the Damned, which mm -hmm. I loved growing up. I, when I first time I saw him when I was young, I was like, "Oh my God, this is brilliant! How did you, they make this? You know, you hear you got Ed Wood making Plan Nine from Outer Space, and people are making stuff like this. Yeah, they were fantastic. I did not like the remake. You know, yeah. I like John Carpenter a lot, but I did not much care for that remake. It's at the bottom of my list of John Carpenter films. Top of my list is probably In the Mouth of Madness, okay. which is a fantastic film. The reason I ask is we did it for the film club or whatever. We screened that with Adam Eisentrout. I don't think I made it to that one yeah, for some reason. That was my choice of movie, you know, was uh, In the Mouth of Madness. And it's very H.P. Lovecraftian and yeah. stuff. So, you know, that that one's fantastic. But, um, but you know, the thing is, like I say, right up there, you know, yeah. button up against that one. I mean, now, would you say this is one of your favorite films of all time or just one of your favorite John Carpenter? It depends on how many films we put in that category. Okay. <laughs> I have a lot of favorite films. It gets really difficult because I've seen a lot of films, you know. I teach film, so from silent Edison films of, you know, giving baby a bath <laughs> you know, all the way up to contemporary films. I've seen an awful lot of films uh, and a lot of brilliant films. So it's often easier if you're in categories. So if we're in the category of the thing, you know, this kind of sci-fi, horror-ish type of category, um, you know, there are movies I like better. Like, I like the remake of Invasion of the Body Snatchers, the 78, I think it was, okay. version with Donald uh -huh. Sutherland. Yeah. That's one of my favorite. I can watch that anytime, any place. I can do that with the thing and in the mouth of madness too, but that one I just just love the whole whole underlying story there of knowing who's who, and of course the thing does that too. Who's who, you know? Uh, but I enjoyed They Live. You know, that's another Carpenter film. It's very popular. It was campier, you know, than this one, but yeah, he knows what he's doing. Um, it, uh, at, at what point did the thing stick out for you? 
Like, was it the first time you first saw time it? I saw like, it. Yeah. Okay. And here's the thing about it's true about great literature. It's true about great music. It's true about uh, anything. And in film, it's 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 also true. And that is that you see something and you like it, right? So you see it that first time when it, when you're over ten or whatever, and you scares <laughs> the crap out of yeah. you. Yeah. I had that experience not with this movie, but when I was young, I saw uh, uh, Romero's. Uh, 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 sorry, Night of the Living Dead. Excuse me. Yeah. And I saw that scared the crap out of me but then you go back to the movie and you watch it again and you find more mm -hmm. and then you go back and you find more so the thing you go back you find more you find more you find more it keeps rewarding you and even this time <laughs> when I was watching again right before you guys came just to see it once one more time I was seeing stuff that I hadn't seen before going and and when you see it it's not like oh that's cutesy or that's flashy or that's whatever it's like it ties into that whole narrative that whole understanding of that work that you've had for all these, uh, you know, all, all these years, it fits right in there. So it's like he doesn't mess up. You know, like he's not, I, let's see if I can make this make sense, but it's like, it's like you see somebody and you notice the logo on their shirt for the first time. And it's not an arbitrary decision. You know, yeah. It fits in. Somebody was talking one time about the costumes in one of the Star Trek movies, one of the early Star Trek movies. Yeah. Um, and they were talking about how the production designer and the costume designer worked together and they made the buttons each were in, of, of the... You guys might know Star Wars. Uh, Star, sorry, Star Trek. Did I say Star Wars? Star Trek is what I know. <laughs> uh, you would know the better than me, but the the villains, the evil aliens. Klingons? Klingons, thank Klingons. you yes. very much. That if you actually got close up on the buttons of each one of the Klingons' outfits, it had Klingon logo on it. You know, that kind of yeah. detail, yeah. you know. Uh, now, they say you can't see it on screen, mm -hmm. yeah, but they knew it was there. But if you're an audience and you could get a shot of it and you say, oh, and you watch that movie and you love it and you get close and you go, oh my God, that's the Klingon logo. It all fits with the whole story. It's not an arbitrary decision. And so they keep uh, what, what we call in literature unpacking. You can keep unpacking the work and finding more and more to like about it and more and more to like about it. Yeah. And you don't just like it just even though you know the story. Mm -hmm. You know, some murder mysteries. And there's been movies like that that are just great, DOAs like that, right? Uh, they're wonderful and you go, oh, that's fantastic. You know, but then once you know the story... You know, say okay. I know. I know what's how it's going to turn out. I know who. The, I know the butler did it. I know whatever. So you, you, you. It's not as interesting the second, third, fourth, fifth time around. It's hard to watch 40, 50 times. So for a movie to have that kind of staying power, it really has to have more than just, oh, I've got to get this package over to the other side of town, and you know, fifteen minutes or else the bomb goes off and destroys <laughs> New York City. There has yeah. to be more than that. You know, there has to be something that hits us as human beings. You know, Star Wars is like that. So people talk about Star Wars, and they say. Um, you know, the, the, when they came out, and I, I was around, I'm old enough to have been around when those movies came out. <laughs> and when it came out, you know, they're talking about the jump to light speed and the Millennium Falcon and the sword fights with the, with the lasers, laser swords. That's what they're fighting about. That's what they're talking about when they leave the theater. But what makes it give it its staying power is it's a, a Bildungsroman about a young man coming of age. Mm -hmm. You know, something that every young man does. How do I break from home? You know, I want to get out of my house. I want to get away from home. I want to be my own independence and stuff. But... Yeah, I don't want to really leave home because then I'm, who makes my food? <laughs> and that's where yeah. Luke Skywalker was. You know, he was like, I want to leave, I want to do whatever. But as soon as he says, oh, come with me and you know, save the galaxy, he's like, well, I can't, I got homework. <laughs> yeah. So it's that part that strikes a chord with everybody and makes them keep loving it, keep loving it, keep loving it. And then the surface level, you know, uh, all works as well. So, you know, that, that's true with, uh, with these movies, usually the movies that I really love and watch over and over again. Those that they have that they have something underneath the surface that that ties it to humanity, our own humanity, so we can appreciate it. The thing certainly does that. Mm -hmm. You know, how do you know who these people really are? You know, I mean, if you want to put it into some kind of popular context, just imagine that people when they, they, so they find out their neighbor was a serial killer, 
You know, what are they always saying? Oh, Sinclair's such a nice guy. I don't. I never saw it in him. And there's, you know, that thing thing echoes that. You know, you don't know who that person really is. And then the thing goes even farther to say, you don't even really know who you are when you come down and think about it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Unless you're as strong as Ma- Max McCready. Mac McCready, excuse me. Two actors that stood out to me that I haven't really seen, like this early on in their careers were Keith David. He's the one at the end with Kurt Russell. Oh, Charles. Charles, Charles yeah. Charles, yeah. Um, I haven't seen him in anything where he's this young. I'm yeah. used to him playing like the older author- authoritative uh, figure yeah. yelling at the, pretty much the, the police chief yelling at the cops for mm-hmm. doing the wrong thing. That's what I know him mostly as now. Um, and then Wilford Brimley. Um, would, he's not young in this, but this no. is the like this is pre this is pre cocoon. Yeah, uh, and it seems like he aged a lot between this and cocoon, and that's only a few years. Well, you'd be surprised once you yeah. get there. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it surprises but, me every day. But it it took me a minute because it, it didn't click that it was him right away. Mm-hmm. But then once I realized it was him, all I could think was diabetes. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I love the cast. I yeah, he's been out for a great job with the cast, um, and. Uh, he's got a nice mixture you know, between people you recognize people you don't recognize. Mm-hmm. So it was a good job casting it. Of course, I've seen it so many times you can't imagine anybody else in the roles. You know, you get yeah. locked in. It's like, how can anybody but Harrison Ford play Han Solo? How can this yeah. be possible? It usually is, but it's hard to imagine it when you're locked in. And the, all these characters, I just know them so well and locked into them. Uh, one, th- one visual that I really liked in this, well, one transition was um, they used the thing... When the, the first reveal of the the corpse, the thing corpse that they fu- bring back yeah, right. from the camp, they used the smoke to reveal the, the body, and I really liked yeah. that transition because it, it's heavy on the smoke, and then the smoke dissipates, and then you see the twisted up corpse for the first time, and that that's something that I haven't really seen before in film. That oh, really having s- smoke clear. Well, for for a reveal of something like that, yeah. uh, I've seen, yeah. I've had, but just for like the, that visual, it's really a it's st- a cool technique. Uh, they were trying to. I mean, you can watch. See, you can watch the whole movie. And just watch what they do with with smoke and breath. Yeah. But they, you know, there's they they were trying uh, to create this contrast with the cold. You know, with the cold. So they tried to make sure everything kind of, you know, if it was if it was a hot thing and it was in the cold, it would let the vapor or whatever. Like the, you'd see people's breath. You'd see the heat mm-hmm. rising. You'd see stuff like that. And that was one of my favorite aspects of actually the film, of mm-hmm. how they used the environment. Mm-hmm. That you just didn't have the play with, you know, who are you, who am I, and that undertone, but they also used the environment to also make it a bit more, to, uh, to put more anxiety into it. Yeah. Because you've got that, you know, you're isolated, there's really no help coming, and it just, it kind of throws the situation at your face just a little bit harder, as 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 opposed to it taking place in like a science lab in, uh, in the middle of a city. Right. Like this is there out in the middle of nowhere and they played with the elements very mm-hmm. well to and, it. Because that, I mean, there were times where they literally could not go outside, so they right, were just yeah. stuck and, and they had to deal with it. That's to John W. Campbell's credit. He's the guy that wrote the short story who goes there. Yeah. And, and he, it, you know, I've read a bunch of Campbell's uh, stuff. He was one of the pulp sci-fi writers in the 50s and whatever. And he, uh, you know, he... I've read the stories, but this one stands out. And it stands out from a lot of the work of that period because uh, he placed it in the Antarctica. Yeah. And, and I've given a lot of thought to this movie, and uh, you can't put it anyplace else. You know, I mean, if there's any life anywhere that can travel, you, you can't put it there. But you put it in the Antarctica in the middle of nowhere, the thing couldn't make it anywhere. 
You know, yeah. I mean, it would try, it would freeze, and then how long before the, another hundred thousand years before anybody finds it? Yeah. Uh, but if you were, if you had a river, or you had an ocean, or you had, you'd just become a fish and it'd take over the entire ocean because mm -hmm. right, no nobody to fight it there before you ever knew it was there, and then take over the fishermen, the fishing industry, and work its way out. Any place you go, so you can't do it in the city. You know, you, you can't. It's uh, it, it has to be someplace secluded and isolated. But they do a beautiful job. But when you talk about the environment, I mean, the shots are gorgeous. The cinematography yeah. is absolutely gorgeous in this thing. Uh, if you see a good copy of it, which I always recommend you see the best copy possible. But uh, when I see the opening, I'm uh, taken to where I'm, I'm it's probably because I'm a literary person, you know, I, my degrees are in English and stuff. So, But uh, I think like, you know, like the entrance to Fargo where it starts with just white and then the mm -hmm. story emerges onto the screen, it breaks, like breaks through the white on the screen, the way words break onto a page and mm -hmm. they're written. Uh, and this one does that. You have this white, you know, snowy landscape shot, very wide shot. A uh, series of wide shots, actually, in the beginning, and all of a sudden the story bursts out of that. You know, all of a sudden where there's this helicopter, and it creates this sense of what's going on, right? And then these these Norwegians get in there, and they they come into this camp, and people look at them on the camp, going, "Well, who's this?" You know, I mean, the original story was called "Who Goes There," so it's like, "Well, who's this? What does he want? What's happening? Why is he trying to shoot the dog?" So you get that like right from the beginning, you get this, this story emerging from the landscape of the screen, uh, and there's also a, I was thinking about this when I was watching it this time again is the contrast that creates this beautiful contrast you know like black words on a white sheet of paper you have this white backdrop to you know the the black story uh, the dark story which is the the people and the and the characters and the objects that are put in there and if you look at it by the time we get to the end it's dark mm -hmm. yeah starts bright light you know and then also the story starts emerging and it gets so full that by the time you're at the end it's dark and all you see is those characters now you've lost the white backdrop mm. That's great. I mean, there's no big wide snow shots uh, in the uh, climax, you know, when they're burning the camp and everything. Spoilers, hey. Burning yeah. the camp. There's, there's no, uh, there, are, there are no big wide, you know, the snow part's gone, the white part's gone. It's like, so, and there's also the implication there. Here you've got this pristine world, yeah. and here comes this thing to screw it all up, you know. And you see that more than once. Like I said, in Fargo, the Cone Brothers did the same thing. Yeah. White, snowy, nothing, and then boom. Here comes that car. Speaking of Fargo, the the, the one thing that sticks out of my head because I've only seen that movie once, uh, but well, it's yeah, it gets you to watch more movies. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, believe me, that's I, why I, I watch. Podcast, a, yeah, it's yeah. over the podcast. I do watch a lot of movies. It's just that it's I tend to some movies I watch maybe once or twice yeah. and then move on to something else. But the one, uh, but the one scene in Fargo, we talk about the use of you know just the white landscape, yeah. and especially for this scene in Fargo, the color, the red. Mm -hmm. When yeah. they come across and he's using the wood chipper, yeah, and the foot sticking out of the wood chipper, but just they pull the the cameras pulled back and you just see, just it's just it's red on yeah. the snow, yeah, and just right. that that one scene is just stuck with me for whatever reason from that movie, mm -hmm. and I think it's because exactly what you're talking about, it's just the it. white and the red and, and it just and on it sticks, you know, yeah, they're doing that on purpose, mm -hmm. and it echoes to the beginning of the film, yeah, know, where not not the scene where they go to the bar, which I believe in the screenplay was not the first scene in the screenplay, but it was the first scene in the in the film. But uh, they have the shooting, yeah. right? Where they shoot the shoot uh, the shoot the cops and stuff, and you get blood on snow. You mm -hmm. just kind of we've messed things up. We talked we talked a little bit about them being isolated in Antarctica uh, because of their surroundings, and I think that's a good transition to start, go into Hopes of Sparrows. What a fabulous yes. film! <laughs> um, Not since the thing was a movie yeah. of this length made it into a theater. Uh, a little bit of history uh, about mm -hmm. Kevin and I. Uh, he was my college English professor my freshman year, and we also and I was in a class called the Monalto Film Project, where we had four semesters to make a feature film. And 
you've done. We did. We, we did. Yeah, we did. Uh, we've done three feature films together. Mm-hmm. Yes, uh, we have. Hostess Sparrows being the latest one. Okay. Uh, tell the listener a little bit about Hostess Sparrows. And... Well, it's a thriller, unless you're not thrilled. <laughs> but it's a, it's a thriller about an ex-con who gets out of um, prison after serving 13 years. He has stashed away the money from his last job, and he plans on going to Florida and basically retiring from crime. But the sort of mastermind, the puppet master of the criminal organization, wants the money back. So he's trying to figure out how to get to the guy that's out of prison, that just got out of prison, uh, whose name's Tom. And he knows that Tom has this daughter. And Tom knows he has the daughter too, but it was from an, uh, uh, I hate to say illicit, but from this love affair. His true love happened to have been married at the time, which I understand happens. It doesn't happen to me, but I understand it happens. And, uh, so they, and she had a child. Right, but uh, the the mother has was dead by this point, had been had been killed. So so he, the the child doesn't know that he's her father, so they've never really met. And um, the mastermind, his character named Finn, uh, negotiates to get the daughter to this bed and re- secluded bed and breakfast uh, in the Antarctica. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, out in the middle <laughs> of the woods, and. Um, in order to coax the guy there so he can hopefully get the money out of him. You know? uh, and, and, I mean, that's basically it. And then you find out that you, know, you end up at this bed and breakfast at the, uh, with these characters, these seven characters, and they are all seemingly unrelated, but by the time we get to the end, you find out every single one of them is related to this, this murder that took place like 12 years earlier or something. Yeah, There's a little bit of the same thing in the thing where you can't really know who to trust yeah. in the in the bed and breakfast yeah don't do it quite as well as carpenter but yeah it's, it's there. yeah it's there it's there oh. it's close close to carpenter close to carpenter <laughs> it's going on the fucking poster <laughs> <laughs> a host of spirits close to carpenter um do you have any questions about sparrows <laughs> um, when Alan was working on it, uh, he was telling me about bits and pieces of different things that were going on. Um, and the the one aspect is I haven't, when it comes to the storyline, that's probably the best ex- like uh, explanation I've heard so far. Um, but, well, he wrote the screenplay. Well, so. I know, I know. I'm just saying, you know, it's just, you know, from, from yeah. everything that you told me about it, that's, you know, yeah. I have a better understanding of it now. Mm-hmm. Um but when he was working on it, he showed me some pictures from on set. And one thing that uh, has always interested me back when I was a kid, Discovery Channel used to have a show called Movie Magic. Mm-hmm. And it would show about how they would, you know, like blue screen, right, and, yeah. you know, like all, all that different stuff. Um, one thing that really interested me in one of the photos was you guys set up uh, for a rain scene. Yeah. And you guys had to, like, physically yes. build that rig. Yes, and you, and get that set up. Um, when it comes to writing out the, uh, when it comes to writing out the screenplay, mm-hmm. and when it comes to um, picking like the weather environment for a scene, how do you go about matching what the environment or the weather should be like for what's going on for for the characters? Uh, oh, why pick rain? Is yeah, well, yeah, yeah. Like, yeah. Well, I mean, there's a number of reasons. I mean. Uh, I wrote the script without knowing how to do rain. So, okay. I mean, I was like, how are we going to do this? I don't know. But, and we went through multiple revisions and, and before we finally locked the script but, that we shot. But it, uh, I had rain in there because we had to have these people trapped. 
It's okay. polluted. Yeah. Because right. it's not set in Antarctica. Well, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> Antarctica, we're covered. Yeah. Uh, so that's the idea. They can't get out. And, okay. and bed and breakfast is out in the middle of... I mean, one thing I hate in movies is I hate... I mean, I hate a lot of things sometimes. But this, I hate when you have a situation where the character's like someplace like in a uh, secluded bed and breakfast and then somebody gets killed, Right. Um, and then they're like, oh, gosh, let me go to my room and think about this. I'm saying, or get in the car and drive home. And, yeah. Or even if the car's ruined, if there are people dying, I mean, I know I wouldn't be there anymore. Yeah. I'd go hit the woods and get the <laughs> hell out of there, and I wouldn't tell anybody I was leaving. Mm -hmm. So you say, well, how do I keep them there? You know, people that were not inclined to be there, yeah. how would I keep them there? Uh, and so rain does it, right? You get a, get a big enough rainstorm, and it, in this case, washes out a road, yeah. so they can't get out. Yeah, I mean, they could yeah. swim out. One character says, well, we could swim out, but you know, <laughs> uh, that's about the only way out. And by that time, they're really deep into the, the story, so they can't, you know, they've got other things going on. Yeah. But, uh, so that was it. That was okay. it. But it was very interesting to do Rain. I uh, didn't, wasn't sure how I was going to do it. I got this uh, wonderful guy, John Strahler, who has this great red truck. He's been in two of my movies now. Yeah. And um, it was a great guy, and he's very handy. I'm not a very handy guy, so I can't, you know, build things and go... Oh, yeah. let me get you a bookshelf. There you go. You want a couch? There. Yeah. Um, but he can. And so I, I researched how rain was done in movies. It's extraordinarily expensive to do it, you know, like like Road to Perdition. I don't know if you know that film, but the rain sequence in that, you know, with Tom yeah. Hanks approaching the bad guys and taking them out. Beautiful rain. Yeah, you know, beautiful rain. So I started watching a lot of rain. You know, you watch movies that have rain and looking at how... Uh, rain effects are produced and made and then you say I can't afford that <laughs> so, yeah. so how can I fake this and and the reality is you could change the script we had to change the script sometimes because I had these shots and this happens to everybody who loves movies who writes you know you have these beautiful shots in your mind yeah. I had this one beautiful just that's uh, still in there I mean it's still like oh, I wish I could have seen this but where this car enters, big wide shot huge yeah. wide shot car enters from the left front pouring down rain everywhere rain hitting everything Pours and drives up, and there's a on the right, you know, this flooded out road. So yeah. it drives in, in, in profile up, stops, two people get out and walk forward. So we've got car, people, flooded road. Mm -hmm. uh, before we go to a close up, leather shop, that couldn't do it. You know, I'd say, well, we can't get rain over that bigger period. So you have to come yeah. in close for rain. You know, I mean, even the windows, you know, we didn't, we just don't have enough stuff and, and yeah. livability, enough people. So like if we're shooting a scene, we just maybe get rain on the window behind the shot. That's yeah. it. You know, we can't have a wide shot because we take in 15 windows. We can't. I think we could do two windows at a time. That okay. was the most we could do. Uh, so we built a rig. John Strahler built this rig for us, um, and uh, we worked on that. And we tested it. Didn't work. Tried to get, redid it until we got it to work. And we ended up doing it with you know a couple of ladders and. Uh, he had built this like pole, you know, that would stretch across the ladders. We ended up having to screw them into the ladders to make yeah. sure they stayed stable. And um, lawn sprinkler heads down okay. the thing so they could yeah. be adjusted. Yeah. And that was the primary source of rain. And then I got a couple just little sticks you use in the garden. Mm -hmm. you know, as long as it had a spray head on it. And that's all we had, two sticks and that, that big device. But it worked great. And it was crazy sometimes. I mean, now I can tell yeah. you he was there. Oh, yeah. We had, uh, we had, to, had to hire a water truck because we're out in the middle of nowhere. So if they're not in the bed and breakfast, you know, yeah. they're out in the wilderness. How do you get rain in the wilderness? So we had to get, bring a, wil uh, a uh, water truck out, hire a water truck, and he would pump the water through. And we had, like, people running after people <laughs> holding this, thing, this device. And I remember at yeah. one point we're doing a scene where a character is running in the rain yeah. along the lake, and we, we had the rain bar... It was me next to the lake, and then one of the grips, Darren, yeah. on the other side. We're just holding mm -hmm. the bar above our heads, running backwards. I yeah. hit a tree like at least five times. <laughs> 
My arms were all beat up from the branches. Yeah. But it, it was worth That's it. That's a commitment yeah. to art. Yeah. yeah. And, and it was hilarious because, you know, he's running. He's, he's got the poles and they're running. The grips were running. And, um, and you know, I'm running. I'm the director. Yeah. I'm running backwards. And the DP, of course, is running backwards with the camera. So you got all these massive people running back, spraying rain on this, this on Elizabeth Wilde, who plays Margo in the film. Um, does a fabulous job. Uh, but spraying rain on her as she runs because we couldn't r put rain down the whole length of it, of the shot. Yeah. There's no way to have that much rain without money. You know? so or actual rain. Or actual rain. <laughs> yeah. But you can't use actual rain, yeah. you know that. You yeah. On set. Well, on set, we didn't have a day of rain. Like yeah, maybe one... Little sprinkles. Little sprinkles, day, yeah. but nothing, cool. nothing that mm -hmm. the screenplay called for. So yeah. any, any rain that you see in the movie is artificial. It's practical yeah. effects, yeah. And, and we had, and when you see it, I mean, there's a couple of places where you can see light and you go, because it's a lot of light, but we have flooded road scenes and they're standing and pouring their rain and I think it came out pretty well, uh, but those days were like sunny days at the beach. Yeah. Not a cloud in the sky, everybody got sunburned, you know, mm -hmm. but when you see it on the, on the screen, it looks like rain. Cool. Yeah. Yeah, having seen the film, I'm very impressed with how the rain turned out. Because yeah, like on set, you're like, this isn't going to work. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but having seen the film, it works. It works. And we and I, I nine times out of ten. I yeah. looked at the mistakes yeah. people made, and I got to where I can recognize them now when I'm watching stuff. Usually on yeah. TV shows they'll mess it up, but you can see the mistakes they make with the rain. I made we made mistakes, you know. They're small, but we made them. And I was just watching something. I don't remember what it was, but it was uh, just in the last few days. And I saw the rain. Said that's good rain. And they did another shot. Good rain. And then they did this one shot where the rain's coming from two different angles. And I said, Oh, I know what went wrong there. Because <laughs> we got a couple shots in ours where the rain's not all traveling in the same direction. But most of it is, and, and it works pretty well. And, and it's virtually all practical effects. Yeah. I did add a little digital here and there just to make it seem more stormy. But yeah, almost all that rain is practical. All of, almost most most of our effects are practical, except yeah. gunshots and bullet holes in walls. You know, because yeah. we couldn't shoot bullet holes in walls. Well, yeah. Well, we could have. It would just been, been we would cost more us fix. more money. We would have no budget left. <laughs> um, so the premiere is July seventh in Chambersburg. July seventh, Capitol Theater, Chambersburg, Pennsylvania. Right. Uh, we'll, we'll make sure to put a link. Free in giveaways, the free posters. Yeah. Well, uh, I'll be there. Yeah. You be there. I gotta look at my schedule, okay. but I'm gonna try to be there. Well, buy a ticket even if you don't come. That's fine. Yeah. <laughs> um, we'll put a link in the description for anyone who's interested in tickets. Mm -hmm. um, you can follow a host of sparrows on Facebook. You can. Um, There's a website. And meet the whole cast. The entire cast is coming. Yes, mm -hmm. uh, the entire cast will be there. I think most of the crew is gonna be there, as yeah. far as I know. Uh, as I, yeah, so. uh, as far as I've heard, I haven't heard anybody who isn't coming. Um, so that's that's fabulous. I mean, when you get a free poster, you can get it signed by everybody. You know, yeah. Just have them write small. And if uh, previous premieres are any indication, this is going to be a good night. So. Last one went very well. Last yeah. one went very so. well. You got anything else? I don't have anything else. All right. Yeah. Kevin, thank you for ha yeah, thank you for welcome. being here. No uh, appreciate. Thank you for hosting us. Yeah, uh, that's no in problem. Your house. Um, for you have to watch this podcast. I'm Alan. And I'm Ryan. And we'll see you next week. <laughs>